and welcome to Flint's Geopolitics for Business podcast. I'm Katie Whitting. I'm a director with Flint and a former Australian diplomat. Today we will be discussing the recent BRICS summit and what it could mean for the future of the international order. This podcast will last for around 25 minutes. For this episode, I'm joined by Sir Simon Fraser, managing partner at Flint and co-founder and former head of the UK Foreign Office and Diplomatic Service, Haifa Mata, a Flint partner and former Bahraini diplomat, and Francois-Joseph Chichan, a Flint director and former French diplomat. First of all, thought it would be useful to cover just very briefly what is the BRICS. Um, So it has a bit of an odd history as far as multilateral groupings go. It was originally uh, in the early 2000s a Goldman Sachs idea, mostly focused on foreign investment strategies. And at that point, it was BRICS with a small s, Brazil, Russia, India and China. And it was basically the world's fastest growing economies and where a bank could see that there were opportunities. The grouping did consolidate a bit more over the next decade or so, and I think they had their first formal meeting in 2009 and then further again when South Africa joined in 2010. So, Simon, I know that you have strong views on the BRICS, uh, including because we've discussed them a lot over the past few weeks since the summit. So some have suggested that the BRICS summit could be the equivalent of a G7 for developing countries or emerging markets. What is the significance of the recent summit from your perspective? Well, thanks. I don't don't think it's that I particularly have (laughs) strong views on the BRICS, but I do think it's very important that uh, we analyse these things carefully and don't leap to sort of simplistic conclusions. As you say, the BRICS was a term originally invented to describe a group of rapidly growing economies, not a political group. Uh, And some of those economies, notably China and India, have indeed grown very strongly. Others, like Russia and South Africa, have not. Uh, And it's important to note that when the BRICS was, the concept first took off, Western countries were very supportive of it, and they encouraged the growth of those economies through globalization, and there was nothing adversarial in it at all. So what has changed now is that we do have an adversarial geopolitical situation, and the mood has shifted, and China and Russia are now overtly antagonistic towards the United States. But India, if anything, has become a bit closer to the United States and more antagonistic with China. Uh, And at the same time, the US has withdrawn from its international leadership role in a way that's created a power gap. So we've got a shifting geopolitical situation. And what we're seeing is attempts by China and Russia in particular to make the BRICS a more political bloc to counter the US and the West and to exercise collective weight. But my point is that beyond that objective, which I think they do have, I would argue there's not really much cohesion or alignment of values or indeed of purpose between them. And that's reflected a bit in the what I consider to be the pretty lightweight final statement of the BRICS summit meeting itself. Uh, and it's a meeting, remember, which Putin wasn't even able to attend because of his um, situation in international law. Final point on the BRICS is that the big outcome of that summit was this proposed enlargement to 11 members. Uh, and that reflects this effort, I think, to challenge US preeminence and also the desire of some of the middle powers in the world, the so-called middle powers, to give themselves more options and more leverage 
in a multipolar world. And I think this is interesting, and I think Haifa can can talk about it, because actually Saudi Arabia and the UAE in particular, for me, that was a very interesting development. But look at the rest, Iran, Ethiopia, Argentina, they hardly represent a sort of homogeneous group, and they don't have, a, I would argue, a tremendous amount of, uh, of global soft power. And the bigger the group is, the more diverse its, its identity and priorities become. Uh, and that last point, just to finish off, is why, you know, you go back, you, you started by talking about my views on things, and it's why I uh, think that the G7 is often underestimated. Because yes, it is declining as a collective percentage of world GDP, and in some other ways, but its strength as a group lies in the fact that it is a group of advanced democracies who do have a broadly shared view of domestic and international politics. And that is the case at least as long as President Biden remains in office. So the future of the G7 is very dependent, in my view, on what happens next in the United States, and that will influence the prospects for the BRICS as well. I think all of that makes total sense. But putting the BRICS to one side, it does seem like the meeting itself last week was kind of a moment for middle powers and emerging economies. Um, So even if the BRICS itself isn't the new G7 or isn't cohesive enough to offer that type of counterbalance, what does the summit itself tell us about how the international order is evolving? Yeah, well, here I do agree with you that there's something, there is something very important going on and there's, there's a lot of change happening and we have to be conscious of that. The BRICS is symptomatic of that change. I wouldn't say the BRICS is the sort of sole driver of it, but it's symptomatic of it, this expansion of the BRICS in particular. Now, why is this happening? Well, the US is in a degree of disarray. It has withdrawn from international leadership in many areas. Economic and demographic growth in the world is happening primarily elsewhere than in the West at the moment, although there's lots of challenges in China, for example. Confidence in the West around the world and in the values we project or purport to project has been eroded by our behaviours in Iraq, in Afghanistan and elsewhere. China is becoming more assertive. Russia has frankly gone rogue, in my view. So we are in a phase of geopolitical confrontation where countries and leaders don't seem to believe in common interests, and they're competing for power in new ways, in a new context where economies remain closely interdependent, and technologies are advancing fast and leaping national borders. So new patterns are emerging, and we have to follow those carefully. Okay, I think there's going to be a nice kind of line between the BRICS a couple of weeks ago, and the G20 summit this week that's going to be hosted in India. So can an expanded BRICS exercise more influence over the G20? And what is the US and Western and perhaps G7 approach to that, both as most of the BRICS and the G7 being subsets essentially of the G20? Yeah, well, the G20 is another important part of this international uh, institutional structure that is emerging. And, you know, it's a grouping of major economies from across the world. And it's a good idea in principle, Clearly, because as the sort of changes that I've described take place, you need more people around the table. But its strength, in my view, is also its weakness because it's hampered, in a sense, by that very political diversity and the differences between its members, especially when you have the sort of conflicted world I've been talking about. So I think the G20 is a forum which can work well when there is a collective will to solve a collective problem. 
And that is indeed what happened in 2009 when we had the London G20 summit dealing with the consequences of the financial crisis. And I do think, for example, the G20 would be a very good forum to galvanize action on climate change internationally because the right people are around that table. If the will existed, that would be great. But I believe, sadly, the will doesn't exist, frankly, to work together. So I have no doubt that China and Russia will seek to show that the BRICS are exercising greater influence in the G20, which is going to be chaired by India, mm. which is a BRICS member. Uh, I doubt that we will come to very dramatic, serious outcomes because of the differences I've described. And it's worth noting that neither President Putin nor President Xi, as I understand it, is planning to attend the G20. Mm. And I think it would be the first G20 that China's leader hasn't attended. Obviously, Putin has got his own restrictions. But the decision by Xi, I think, is quite interesting. Francois Joseph, you were formally posted to India. Uh, What do you think about all of this? Yeah, I think it's worth touching on briefly on on India's role in all this because it's quite interesting within the the G20. Uh, As Simon said, (coughs) India is hosting the summit. It's also a founding member of the BRICS. And I think it's a good example of a country that will pick and choose its alliances based on its interests. So in the case of India, you will see that on one hand, it remains close to Russia on defense cooperation for historical reasons, but also more recently on energy. And on the other hand, it's also getting closer to the US and other Western countries with obviously China in mind. So I think India is going to use the G20 to champion this approach, as well as trying to appear as defending developing countries' interests. And for example, India's push for the African Union to join the G20 this year is, I think, a good example of this. Uh, But overall, I think India is going to have a very difficult task this year. Um, it's, in, it's interesting to know that most of the meetings in the lead up to the summit, the ministerial meetings that sort of prepare the summit, um, they have all failed to reach consensus, to, reach, to, to um, achieve like a joint statement and all of that. And, and that means that there is a risk that the, G, the, the G20 summit itself is going to fail to reach an agreement on a joint stat- statement, for example, on an issue like, like Ukraine, for example. And that would be a, a, a pretty bad result. Mm. Okay, so moving on, I'd like to talk a little bit more about one of the issues that that Simon, you touched on, which is expansion. So the big news, and I think everybody was quite surprised, was the fact that the BRICS agreed to six new countries joining. And I think the most interesting of those is is Saudi Arabia and the UAE. Haifa, you you mentioned to me last week, I think, when we were talking about the BRICS, that this means the the fact that Saudi and the UAE are joining means that six of the world's top nine oil producers are now part of the BRICS. So what do you think drove Saudi and the UAE to join? And, And do you think that we could see more Gulf states join? Sure. I think, I mean, first, I just wanted to add on to what Simon said and, and mentioned that BRICS is yet to become an institutional force for an alternative economic or security order. But both the UAE and Saudi were invited to join next year. They've not formally joined yet. But both countries, I think, have very clear ambitions for global governance and see potential membership to BRICS as a way of exercising leadership and achieving their global ambitions. They're keen to build coalitions on an issue-by-issue basis, depending on where their national interests lie. They're also very keen on balancing their traditional partnerships with the U.S. and Europe, with their largest trading partner in the East, China and India. And they basically can't afford the luxury of total alignment. 
with the U.S., despite their defense and security partnership, because their energy and economic interests are tied with countries like Russia, China, and India. I also think that countries like Saudi Arabia and the UAE converge with some other BRIC members on the opposition to U.S. protectionism and the weaponization of the U.S. dollar and trade. And so they're keen to develop a broader financial toolkit to mitigate their dependency. If we go back to um, earlier this year in March, China completed its first ever purchase of liquefied natural gas from the UAE using its own currency. Um, So I think if they both join, um, they would use the BRICS platform to find common ground with other members of the group on energy-related issues and sustainable development. We're already seeing... um, we're already seeing seeing that happening. The UAE and India are inching towards a renewable energy interconnection agreement, for example. They'll also most likely use this opportunity to attract talent and investment through strategic partnerships on information technology, for example. I think the second part to your question in terms of sort of broader interest from the Gulf there, there definitely is um, interest. Uh, Bahrain officially applied to join BRICS last year and, and, and attended the summit in South Africa. Kuwait also attended the summit. So it'll be interesting to see what happens um, in upcoming summits. Thank you. And that's quite interesting, um, your comment about uh, China buying LNG from the UAE in the Ramimbi, because I think that probably... Um, I mean, I can certainly see an opportunity for China through the BRICS um, to kind of advance its internationalisation of the Ramimbi efforts, um, which are kind of, um, I think, faltering a bit, including because of the Russia issue. Um, So I I think that's that's all super interesting. Thank you, Haifa. One question for me, and you touched on it briefly, I think, but it'd be interesting to to talk about a little bit more is about um, what this means in the context of broader Gulf foreign policy. Uh, So what do you think an ideal international order looks like for the Gulf? And how do you think they'll go about getting there? Um, I think many Gulf countries see a global order that's evolving, um, where power is more diffused. It's not just about the US and China. It's about the U.S., China, and a host of other countries that have influence. And I think countries like Saudi Arabia and the UAE see themselves play a role in that environment. Um, They see themselves evolving into middle power status, and they want to have a seat on the table, and they have a seat on the table. They're also pushing back against what they see as the hegemony of global affairs by the West. Um, This doesn't mean that they don't value the partnerships that they have with the U.S. and Europe, but they see the repercussions of a very polarized world, which has become even more polarized um, with the Russia and Ukraine crisis. Um, They don't want to be told who to support and how to conduct their sovereign affairs. They've become much more independently minded and feel strong enough to assert their own positions and and are no longer willing to accept these binary terms of either you're with us or Mm -hmm. against us. They're becoming, you know, they're economic players um, and don't want to remain on the margins in terms of global decision making. And we've really seen that come to the fore. Um, You know, last month, Saudi Arabia hosted hosted peace talks on the Ukraine war following informal talks in Copenhagen in June. Um, Forty countries attended that summit. 
Um, and also last month, um, China and the UAE held their first ever joint Air Force training, the mm. Falcon Shields um, 2023. So I think ultimately GCC countries see more opportunities than risks in this challenging world order, and they're building bridges with everyone. Mm. That's very interesting. And I mean, that says to me that the Gulf is is a region to watch really closely. Um, uh, I mean, my background is more in, in Asian politics, but I'm I'm kind of now, <laughs> now very interested in in following Gulf politics a lot more closely. Um, so, just on Asia, I mean, uh, China was obviously one of the biggest driving forces behind the the bigger, better BRICS. Uh, and I think one question that people are asking themselves: are, What do they get out of it? Why are they doing this? Um, I think. I mean, for me, China's got uh, aspirations to push an alternative to the Western-led international order. Um, they tried to do it alone with the, the Belt and Road Initiative, uh, which was obviously much more than just an investment strategy. Um, there's been efforts over the past decade or so um, to influence uh, outcomes at, at the UN and other multilateral bodies. Uh, now China has all these kind of um, new initiatives um, that it will probably try and get other countries to buy into, like the Global Security Initiative, the Global Civilization Initiative. They're all versions of this kind of effort uh, as part of Chinese foreign policy to, to offer an alternative to the Western-led global order. So I think it's quite obvious that the BRICS is an opportunity for China to to make progress on that front. Um, and it could be kind of one of many, uh, many strands of, of, of China's strategy. Uh, I think it probably sees this kind of interest from the Gulf as quite a coup, given that the, the region has historically had such longstanding historical close ties to the US. Uh, one question that's potentially a little bit more interesting for me is what are other countries getting out of it? So China's support for the BRICS must be being seen by others through the lens of kind of this US-China competition. Uh, but for most other countries in the BRICS, surely one of their priorities is to avoid being drawn into US-China competition. Uh, not all, but but I think many of them, like India. Um, Simon, I'm very interested in your take on this. Yeah, well, I, mean, I agree with a lot of what you said, and, and I particularly agree with the focus that we've had on this, how interesting this move by Saudi Arabia mm -hmm. and the UAE is. And of course, the Chinese brokered a deal between Saudi Arabia and Iran recently, which was a big diplomatic coup. Um, so I do, I do think that, the China, that China clearly wants to sort of mobilize the BRICS, but I also recognize what you're saying and what Hafer has been saying, that others, other countries will play along with that to a certain degree, but they won't necessarily want to get sucked into one camp or the other. And indeed, one of the themes which people have been talking about, particularly since the start of the Ukrainian war, is this movement towards some, what some people call new non-alignment, which is the attempt not to get exactly what you say, not to get drawn in. So that would suggest that a number of countries, while while having interest in you know, building um, a relationship with China, with India, um, potentially with Russia more strongly, are not going to want to be fully identified with that camp. What they're doing, frankly, is they are creating optionality mm. in a world in which the patterns of geopolitics are changing in unpredictable ways. They're hedging. And I think that's what they'll continue mm. to do. And the West needs to be smart in the way that we respond to that. Uh, and actually, I think President Biden has been um, clever in the way that he's reached out to build, rebuild partnerships in Europe and build new partnerships in Asia Pacific. 
and the Americans need to play their cards well. I come back to the point I made earlier. For me, the most significant unknown factor in geopolitics that lies ahead is what happens in Washington and the United States uh, in the election next year. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and I think, I mean, the 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 extent to which the other BRICs align with or support or kind of stay silent on the Russia issue, I think, will be possibly come to a head a bit next year because Russia's due to host the next BRICS summit. So it'll be very interesting to see who actually attends and, and who they send. Um, so one, I think, final issue that um, it'd be good to discuss is what this means for business. <laughs> François Joseph, what are your views? Yeah, um, let me give it a try. I think, um, I mean, reflecting on our discussion, I think, you know, all of these trends that we've been describing really point towards a, a more fragmented world. And I think this is making the environment in which international businesses operate uh, more more unpredictable. And I think one way that we can see this is through um, increased government intervention, whether defensively, um, for example, to reduce economic dependency, or more offensively, through sanctions, for example. So we've seen over the past year in particular, the sort of range of government intervention tools really broadening. Um, So there are sanctions, trade protection, export controls. Uh, supply chain management, investment screening, subsidies in strategy sectors, competition policies. So all of these interventions really put businesses and investors, um, I think, on the front line of, of international politics, which have become much more adversarial in the past in the past year or so. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think just to give maybe three examples of specific sectors, um, I think tech is really um, uh, one of one of the best examples. I mean, we've seen the export control on semiconductors from the US and the EU earlier this year. Um, uh, but also we've seen the G7 playing a more and more important role in determining the direction of travel of policy on AI, uh, with obviously China in mind as well. And the UK is scheduled to, to host uh, the AI summit in, in November. Um, and one of the key questions is how to involve China and to what extent in China should be involved in, in the way the West approaches uh, uh, policy on AI. And I think these are very interesting questions. Um, climate policy is also a field, I think, where geopolitics really clash with with um, with policy objectives, and uh, we can see the developing worlds and the BRICS in particular. And this was very clear in the BRICS declaration. They are really challenging um, the West on this and putting more pressure on the West to deliver on their commitments. Uh, but the effect of that is we are seeing maybe a lack of ambition um, on that area, and COP28 will be probably challenging in that regard. Um, and lastly, on trade, uh, middle powers are also challenging the West, um, uh, particularly through the WTO. So facing all of that, what, what can businesses do? I think, I think one thing they should do first is assess exposure to geopolitical risk, uh, monitor risks, and basically th- this is to avoid getting caught off guard, um, and then anticipate, for example, through diversifying supply chains. Um, and one last point I think that is important is to engage with governments, uh, to be informed about policy and regulatory regulatory changes that are triggered by geopolitical events, um, and I think this dialogue with government is quite important, um, and and businesses really need to um, uh, to start to start doing and governments as well um, in a, in a, in an interaction between between the two. Mm. Yes, just reflecting on what you just said, it does seem like it's just becoming more and more complex. So I think a lot of businesses operate. At the moment, with an understanding that US-China trade investment links are difficult, but it just seems like that's kind of going to burgeon out as relationships become a lot more complex. 
Thank you very much, Francois-Joseph, and thank you also to Simon and Hafer. Uh, that was a great discussion. I think we'll leave it there for the day. But, of course, thank you for listening. We hope you found today's discussion insightful and valuable. Uh, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast channel. Thank you all for joining, and we wish you uh, a very nice rest of the day. Goodbye.